0: Welcome to the Sustainable Nano Podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Krause. So, imagine you're on an admissions committee for a science graduate program, and you're comparing two applications. One student has a 3.99 undergrad GPA and a summer research experience, and the other has a 3.5 GPA and hasn't done any research. Is it an easy decision which one to admit to your program? I think it's safe to say that the answer should be no, it's not easy for a lot of different reasons. And it's not easy for applicants for a lot of different reasons too. Today on the podcast, we're bringing you an interview with Dr. Kat Hicks, a freelance data and social scientist who has worked at places like Google and the UC San Diego Design Lab. We talked to Dr. Hicks before the recent news in the US about the big fraud case in undergrad admissions, which has kind of launched a national conversation about how unfair university admissions processes can be even when they don't involve criminal cheating. There's tons of information out there if you'd like to know more, but in the show notes for this episode, we'll link to a couple of them, including an article in The Atlantic that just came out called Elite Colleges Constantly Tell Low-Income Students That They Do Not Belong by Clint Smith, which I think is a good place to start. It's a big problem. Anyway, so last fall, before all this happened, Dr. Hicks wrote a wonderful piece on Medium called Reading Vulnerable Learners' Applications to Grad School, We Need to Stop Failing Them. We'll put that link in the show notes too, and you really should go read it. Either pause the podcast and go right now, or later if you have to, but do read it. The first line says, A few years ago, I decided to offer to help students with grad school applications. Dr. Hicks basically tweets out when she has some time to read essays and students contact her and she gives them feedback on their drafts. And this essay is really beautifully written and moving and you get a glimpse into how our system is so unfairly stacked against so many people and how a small gesture like this can actually make a big difference. And I thought it would be really interesting to talk to Dr. Hicks about the situation and her experience on our podcast, since we talk about life in science. Uh, And I was planning to do the interview myself. But then I saw a tweet from one of our University of Minnesota chemistry graduate students, Becky Rodriguez. And there she said, my presence on Twitter inspired an undergrad to reach out to me and apply to the University of Minnesota chemistry department. I will never forget that. And I thought it would be way more interesting to have Becky do the interview than me. And fortunately, she agreed. So for those of you who follow the Sustainable Nano blog also, Becky is the one who just recently wrote about celebrating scientists for Black History Month. So she does all kinds of great outreach on top of her chemistry research, which by the way focuses on detecting small molecule toxins that can contaminate food and would make a whole other interesting podcast episode, but we don't have time for that today. So without further ado, here is Becky Rodriguez and myself interviewing Dr. Kat Hicks. Thank you so much for agreeing to speak with us for Sustainable Nano. Can I ask you to just very briefly introduce yourself?
1: Absolutely, Uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you. My name is Kat Hicks and I'm a researcher. I have a PhD in psychology. Um, I also did work uh, a postdoc in human-computer interaction in a design lab uh, and I work in tech now.
2: Great.
0: For folks who haven't read Mm. your essay yet, could you do a little and I, you know obviously we'll really encourage people to read it cuz it's it's beautifully written and and very detailed but can you give a little kind of a synopsis
1: yeah absolutely so yeah miriam you connected with me because i i wrote a little piece and put it on medium specifically about helping vulnerable learners with their graduate application essays and how those moments really turned into a much larger conversation about their lives and how they don't feel a sense of belonging in this process or in, in grad school or in science at all. So, yeah, I, I think there are a number of things in, in the essay. I mean, some of it is just, I just wanted to write about it because I really want more people to do it. And I I thought it was an interesting moment of kind of part of the application that seems really obvious to people who are on admissions committees and they've tried to make it very clear. And I know how much work has gone into those things. And yet there's still this big context gap for people who don't, you know, know how to fit their lives into this framework. I understand why people write this advice that's sort of like, Don't be personal in your essay because you want to talk about being a scientist. And I agree with that in some ways, but it to me is a more complicated question than yes or no, because some people do have these very different lives that need to be heard in order for them to
0: be evaluated fairly. Great. And Becky, who you're here to do the interview for us today, can you introduce yourself a little bit?
2: Yeah, thank you for having me. I am My name is Becky Rodriguez, and I am a third-year graduate student. I am a first-generation um, college student as well as graduate student. My family is from Mexico, Um, they immigrated here in the 80s, and so I think that this conversation will be really exciting for me to have, that there are more people out there trying to get people with diverse and non-conventional backgrounds to pursue PhDs and and
0: advanced education degrees. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. So, do you want to lead off?
2: So, I was going to start with actually one of the first questions, because I was curious, so a little bit about your background and how you got into science.
1: Absolutely. Um, Sometimes I wonder the same thing, uh, the same. You know, it seems like there were so many points at which I could have given up and didn't give up, and I'm I'm really glad about that. And so, uh, I'm a social scientist, but I started out. uh, I came from a pretty difficult background. So I grew up very poor. Um, My parents separated, and my mom was a single mom for a long time in extremely difficult financial situation. I worked all through what would have been high school, except that I didn't go to high school. So I didn't go to school until college at all, actually, uh, which is kind of a big, long story. Also, I was technically homeschooled, um, but like I said, it was really difficult. I worked all the time. I checked out books from the library and read those at night and educated my little brothers from those books as well for a while. So... You know, I don't need to eat up too much time with that stuff. But, you know, first getting into college was its own challenge. I had to figure out how to get into college without any transcripts or grades. You know, homeschooling is a thing that's legal in the U.S. And there are certain laws by every state about how it works. But what I found, too, is that colleges really have no idea what to do with those students, even though there are, I think, several million of them. So it was a process of, you know, we didn't have internet off and on in our apartment. So I would go to the library, use the internet there. There were a couple of very helpful librarians who told me about things like, you know, taking the SAT. I had to kind of just construct all of that information from scratch. I called college admissions offices to ask them what I should do. And these 20 somethings on the other side of the conversation had no idea, (laughs) you know? and one person told me i think you should just take every test that you can take you know so i i took every test that i could afford so i took a bunch of sat 2s if you know those are like the subject tests and and got really interested in the fact that i had no record or grades and had to learn how to take these tests got very interested in assessment so that actually has become one of my big professional focuses I'm super fascinated by the ways that we choose to measure people. And so I got into college. That was, you know, great and lovely. And my world kind of exploded. It had a couple of professors who believed in me, which also, you know, that can make all the difference in the world. Sometimes you just need one person saying, try this thing. Um, Applied to grad school, got into grad school, you know, and, and at every one of these admission points, I feel like the deck was really stacked against me. Like I went to a very tiny liberal arts school that didn't have any labs, went to to a quantitative psychology program that's very research driven. Everybody else in my incoming class had done several years of work in labs. So, you know, from the science point of view, that's becoming really, really typical that all of the people who make it into these programs will actually already have a lot of lab experience, uh, which I think is a huge access issue because, you know, huge numbers of people don't even go to schools that have this opportunity. Even at big schools, you're like sometimes competing with people who can like afford to work in a lab for free or something. So that was kind of my path in, you know, and the PhD was really a great path in. But there were other things after that, like I did a PhD internship at Google, which was lovely. And that was sort of my bridge into tech. And that was another moment where I got an email, you know, to this student listserv and and everybody says like, oh, you could never get a job like this if you just if you don't know anybody and you just cold apply. I, I cold applied and I got into it, and and that really changed my life too, because I met a bunch of amazing people who'd come from all kinds of backgrounds, and that was the first time I'd ever imagined myself in tech, you know, which is a very, a world you kind of see on TV, and it's this kind of glamorous world, and you don't see a lot of women in it, let alone people of color or other things like that, so that was an important step as well. I joined the design lab at UCSD after my PhD, which was another, like, that was moving into a field that was a little more interdisciplinary, and HCI as a community, I think, is very concerned with inclusivity, um, which was not so much the case in my experimental psychology training, not that people didn't care, but it just wasn't, like, part of the culture to actively try to build structures into it. So suddenly, I felt, like, really affirmed, like, oh you know, you can be a professional and like a rigorous scientist and like seriously care about this. And it, and and that can be like part of your work, like part of your science. And that was really cool. Like I'd felt almost like in stealth with this stuff. I studied learning environments in grad school, but I studied like the cognitive development of children in classrooms. I was making environmental arguments, like the environments that we build really matter, but it hadn't gotten to the like point of me being able to integrate that with my personal experiences, I think. So, yeah, so the leap after grad school into the applied work I do now was a good way to do that.
2: Yeah, I, I really resonated with that. And I wanted to ask you a question about what really drove you to, to want to go to college? I mean, if you had, like you said, all of these odds stacked against you and you didn't really have a huge support to be able to get there.
1: Yeah, um, you know, I think it's never just one decision. It's, it's a lot of waking up every day and moving towards, like what they say in, in mindfulness, moving towards your valued direction. And I, you know, really found a lot of beautiful stuff in the world that inspired me. And as much as I didn't know how college worked or how jobs worked, I knew that there was something more, I think than what I was surrounded by. And I was in a pretty um, conservative culture that actively thought women were less intelligent than men and, and had some of these pretty toxic beliefs. So there came a point, I think when I was 14 or 15, where I had to say, am I gonna like buy into this or not, you know? And honestly, like I read a lot of books. I would just go to the library all weekend and like dive into books and live in like these fantasy worlds. And I read a lot of history and biography and all this stuff that I wasn't exposed to in my real life showed me this completely other path. And I didn't know what the path was. I mean, I can't even emphasize how little I knew. Like I didn't know what it would feel like to get homework or how to buy textbooks or like how to eat in a cafeteria, which was these like mundane, weird little things were a huge part of my transition experience into college, which I think is kind of funny because often as educators, we focus on like the very high order, high concept stuff for learners. And they're like, I am really freaked out about like going and sitting in a cafeteria, you know, because food doesn't work this way, where I came from and all that sort of thing, which has been a fun like way to connect to some of these students when I work with them now. Cause 'cause I'm like, I get it. I get that buying textbooks is ridiculous. And there's all these things that you don't know, like now people get stuff online in ways that, you know, people who grew up without any of that context don't know. So I guess the motivation is a dynamic thing. You know, you try to surround yourself by stuff that inspires you somehow. And like, I've always been a very optimistic person, you know, like there's beautiful stuff and I'm gonna move towards it. (laughs) You know, I have siblings too, and and what I believed in for them, I was able to kind of believe in that for me too, and I think that is a huge part too, is like, sometimes it's really hard when you come from a background that hasn't told you what you're worth, it's hard to think, like, what am I worth in, in a vacuum? And I advise learners a lot of the time, I say, you know, what would you tell your little sibling, right? Like, what would you tell your best friend, just make yourself your best friend right now and say you should apply to harvard
0: you know <laughs>
2: like like just try it right yeah that's i i was really thinking about what well, you're talking about spending a lot of time in the library because we didn't have great internet at home and so i'd spend a lot of time in the library trying to do my homework to the point where i'm i like still remember my library card mm. completely through because i would type it in so many times at the school library So I was like, oh yeah, I used to spend
1: a lot of time there. (laughs) I'm curious about you. Like when you were in high school, you know, did you, did you see yourself as like, I'm someone who's going to go to college? I'm like, do you think of yourself as like an academic now? Or how does that come into play with where you are?
2: Yeah. So I had two older sisters um, and both of them did go to college. They were the first in my family to go to college. And so They're only a year apart, and so they were like one after the other, so they're a lot older than me. So by the time I was in sixth grade, both of them had left for college. And so for my parents, my dad only finished up to sixth grade, and my mom only finished um, up to ninth grade because in Mexico you have to pay to go to high school. And so she had older brothers, and so it meant more for them to pay her brothers to go to high school than her. And so, my parents had this huge sort of focus on education, and I think it had a lot to do with the fact that they didn't have those opportunities, and so, they really, really pushed uh, my sisters and I to the point where I, once I remember I got a B in, like, a math class and I got in huge trouble. I was grounded because I was, because I, I, for my parents, it was, you know, it was all or nothing. Because I think they realized that they didn't have the money to put us through college and they didn't have sort of the resources that a lot of other people have. Like, you know, I never got to go to, like, those SAT prep classes or I didn't even buy an SAT book. I just, like took it like without studying. I was like, well, this is I'll see how smart I am now. Um, (laughs) I'm just
1: gonna say that that... SAT is not a measure of how smart you are. I can't (laughs) I can't ever let that pass without you know, for anybody listening.
2: <laughs> but for I mean, for me, it was you have to be the best that you um, can be in any way, shape or form because this is all you have. Like it was really just a matter of like if you're going to get out of this, if you're going to like get out of where we live, out of this city, like you need to be the absolute best. And so it was a lot of pressure for someone who was like 15. But I knew that I had like big dreams and big goals and I, I didn't know what those were. At the time, but I knew that the, the dream was for me at the time going to school in D.C. Like that was the absolute dream. And I and I did end up going to school in D.C. And I would love to go back eventually when I graduate. But it was like I I knew I mean, I understand the idea that like things are stacked against you, but you have to like figure out a way that's going to work. Which is a good way to say um, how you got started in helping what you term to be vulnerable learners and also why you chose Twitter as a medium to get that across.
1: Yeah. And and not all of it is like, it's sort of just what I do when I have time. I was just going to say too, as a side note that I really, you know, your story is so interesting. and, And I think that you know, especially the immigrant experience in America right now is incredibly important. And like, we see a lot at UCSD, where I was like a grad student, obviously, with a a tremendous amount of people with like many different kinds of backgrounds, uh, very diverse campuses in the UC system. And like the kind of amazing amount of stuff that these students juggle, you know, in terms of like, very different cultural pressures and people they have to be. And it's, it's kind of a remarkable gift, you know, to get to like, see into that a little bit they're all brilliant and amazing. And yeah, it's just, I find it really moving. I mean, people whose parents have that experience, right, is that that's such an important story to hear, because really, they have had this experience of like not having anything else or having to like remake a life. And but it's tough, too. It's like a beautiful thing that you get from parents. But it's also like, a lot of pressure to somehow live up to like the life that they had to create, you know? So. That's big stuff. Um, yeah. So, how did I get into helping students? Um, you know, it just it happened completely without my wanting it to happen. I have to say, like, I wish I were just this kind of saintly person, you know, <laughs> who was like, I'm gonna help everybody. I, I actually do really like helping people. I, I shouldn't say that. I mean, it's it's a privilege. But um, but it happened without my realizing it because I think I think that's the funny nature of it is you just go and you're like, I'm gonna be a really great scientist or whatever. And people are so, there's so many people going through so much stuff. And I think until very recently, it has been just nowhere in science and, and not part of the professional conversation at all. So if you just kind of drop a little anything. People are so thirsty for some connection to someone who like cares at all, you know, not to be hyperbolic, but I would just say things kind of like when I was teaching at UCSD as a grad student was really where I got started because I taught a class there on intelligence. And that was the topic of the class in the psychology department, which is a very controversial topic in psychology and, and with current conversations about genetics. I find that stuff really interesting. I feel like I was able to create a culture in that class that was very affirming of, you know, really different experiences and sort of gave people who had come up against this topic, like very scared, right? And very like, oh, the idea of IQ tests, you know, really freaks me out. The idea of all this, this stuff has been very misused and has a pretty ugly history. You know, there's a lot of ugly history in psych. So we had a lot of explicit conversation about that. And a lot of students in that class were like, no one has ever acknowledged this, <laughs> which is which is just wild to me because how could you teach a psychology class without acknowledging like, well, you know, in the 60s, we thought things about women, like let alone people of color, you know, let alone every other attribute. Um, uh, I'm also queer and openly out, you know, and have a female partner. And so that's something, you know, the history of that in psychology was an interesting topic. And I think just being A little bit vulnerable for like a second meant so much to people so I started saying come to my office hours if you want to talk about this stuff because it doesn't bother me and it and I'm not afraid to talk about it and a lot of people did so that was a big part it really wasn't some huge thing it was just like for 10 minutes you want someone to hear about this experience and get a little bit of a a feeling like it's okay and then when I got older and and got actual like stuff on my resume that people cared about, mm-hmm. I took a job at Google and having brands like that on your resume suddenly makes people listen to you. I just felt this responsibility, like <laughs> if anyone's going to listen to me, because I'm the same person as when people didn't listen to me, but now I can kind of help scaffold those other people. So It's just been a lot of like whatever makes sense at the time. I ended up leading some big research projects. I was really interested in open online courses. So I did a big research project between Google, UC San Diego, Coursera, and Duke University. In 2014, 2015, everyone was very concerned with like whether or not they were going to have open online classes. There's some ups and downs with all of those approaches. But I did end up working on this big project, which was specifically geared towards can we create something that's much more welcoming for computer science intro classes for some of these people? So that just taught me a lot because it surrounded me with other people. Of course, I had my own story, but like suddenly not only was I like surrounded by all these learners, I was also working with like very high stakes people at Google, these well-known professors at places like UCSD. And that I was like, oh, okay, they care about this. Now, suddenly, it's also a social science problem about these population groups, which I find very interesting. I love statistics. I love like broadening the kinds of ways that we're measuring people and capturing how wonderful they are. So that kind of became my focus more. And then I started putting that content out there. I mean, sometimes it's very personal. It's like, I will talk to you if you're feeling bad about grad school or something. But often, it's very professional for me, too, because it's like, I disagree with the way that some company is talking about using this metric in hiring and I have both a personal and a professional perspective on that so mm-hmm. then it kind of just happened organically people would reach out to me or see something I wrote and the Twitter thing specifically like what I wrote that medium piece about I don't know I just it just occurred to me that I could do that like one day I, w- I was like I read really fast I really thought that nobody would want this or care about this, but I said, you know, I could read application essays if anybody struggles to find this. And I was kind of in my head like, surely no one struggles to find this because everyone's like out of school and they have a counselor or something. But you know, it turns out a lot of people are in need of some kind of feedback. So I just do that intermittently. I think Twitter, I'm connected with some teachers there. And I think that's probably where, you know, most people find me is that people will send this stuff to their students.
2: Yeah, I think personally through social media, I had a professor who I attribute a big reason as to why I'm in graduate school. I'm going to shout him out real quick, Dr. Hardings. Um, (laughs) And... He would introduce me to professors via Twitter. He would say, I have this great student, and tweet out their handle, and then I would meet, started meeting these professors on grad visits, and... That's great, yeah. And so he had a, a pretty big Twitter following, and it really got me interested, in. I didn't realize how large of a world science Twitter is, and... How people connect and how people give advice and I mean if I tweet something out about having trouble writing a paper multiple people will be like have you thought about this or you know someone even offered hey I'll, I'll read this paper for you and I'll give you some edits and that's actually how my presence on Twitter inspired a undergraduate to reach out to me and we spoke over the phone and she was really excited because there's not that large of a focus on outreach at different graduate schools that they had seen and so I guess my my question to you is if if there were a way to sort of make it more apparent that people are willing to do these things, you know, as a way to as a way to pay it forward, or as you said that I resonate a lot with, that I, I feel a responsibility. It's a big reason why I'm so passionate about outreach. It's a big reason why I'm involved in a lot of different organizations to make women's voices heard, to make women um, of color voices heard. Um, what that route would be, you know, to, to sort of make it more well known that there are people out there who are willing to help?
1: Yeah, I don't have a single answer for that. I think it's, a, it's an ongoing challenge. It is sort of an information problem out there. I mean, I think of a lot of stuff about, obviously, there's huge things you could tackle in the space of like equity and education. You know, there's like, get more kids better food and these things are very big important things. But then there's also this I am very fascinated by this critical information gap, which is just there's so much stuff. Like there's a lot of like 10 things to do when you're applying to grad school. I mean there's a lot of blog posts and websites and stuff like that. And I was very interested in like, why is it still so hard? Or like, what are the kinds of information and connection that are so so hard to know how to get? And I do think it is really the personal part of it. And, and there's just not a lot that's written from the perspective of these people and I kind of understand why I mean I my doctoral dissertation was on disclosure so it was on disclosing performance information like uh, little kids in the classroom uh, when they're five and six and seven um, how do they learn to think about if they make a mistake do they tell their friends do they tell the teacher and if they do something really well do they tell their friends or teachers and this is a really interesting topic and I always come back to it because I think there is a big vulnerability and cost and effort and like sharing and talking about all this stuff you know is not just like easy or obvious for everybody and we want to protect ourselves you know I feel a little scared every time I sort of say even stuff that I'm proud of like even stuff that makes us unique and cool and that I get a lot of positive feedback for it's still really frightening to feel like you're saying I'm different you know so I I think that's one reason people like kind of make it quote-unquote and then they like conceal the fact that they might have these, these backgrounds. Another thing is just access and numbers for real is very hard. I mean, there just are not enough women in science. There are definitely not enough people of color. There's a lot of access and representation issues. I don't know. I think that a lot of people would help but don't even realize how valuable that help could be. Like I'm thinking of, I'm very much in tech, you know, and tech to me is this world of people who are like super enthusiastic and, you know, really energetic, but then also in some ways kind of like cut off from the rest of the world. Like I lived in San Francisco for a while and all these people like really want very desperately to improve the world. But I would mention this to my friends occasionally, like, hey, this Saturday, I'm reading a grad school application essay. All my friends have PhDs because we're all overachievers in this like bubble. And then they would say, wait, that's a thing that you can do? You know, how can I do that? And like, where's the thing that I've up to do it? And and I would say, like, there is no place that you can sign up where it will be given to you, but you can do it, you know, tweet about it or whatever. So I guess maybe the first thing that I would love to see happen is just more people realize this stuff isn't going to come to you passively and that I try to occasionally interject myself and say, I'm here or I have this perspective, which is scary and, and takes some time. And I don't know where all the best platforms for doing it are. But I think sometimes inside your own head, it's like obvious to you that you're like, A woman in science who would help if anyone ever asked you know or something like that and i try to remind myself people are really scared to ask or they should have asked nine months ago before they shouldn't have had to go through all this tough stuff alone right and if if you can encourage them which is another reason why I think it's so great to see more graduate programs explicitly putting statements on their website that are encouraging, that are saying, please, you know, we welcome applications from these groups if you are feeling doubt about, you know, this. Because you have to realize that these people, like vulnerable learners, you know, as a large category, have constant messages telling them not to do things and that they don't belong. And so it's not like they're in this place of neutrality. You know, you have to be, I think really actively encouraging. And sometimes I feel like I'm a little of a hype person or like a Pollyanna, but I'm I'm like, you know, the world is tough. And I would rather err on the side of being a cheerleader for people than not. So
2: So, um, what exactly would you define as someone who is a vulnerable learner?
1: Yeah. A vulnerable learner to me is a term that some people use. Um, you can also say at risk. That's a term you'll hear in education. But I think that's a little more specifically about like, oh, we're looking at students in a school and we want to know who might who's more likely to drop out. You know, in a high school, for instance, that's kind of where that term came from. I find calling people at risk feels a little bit negative in a way that I think can be hurtful. Vulnerable is similar. It's it's used in a bit of a, a broader framework. So I just, I like to say that because I think it covers a wide demographic, a slew of things. And it's not that all of these groups have identical needs. They don't. And it's really important to have separate conversations about, say, women in science or people of color or like LGBT people or, you know, international students. But that's just I mean, it's so big and diverse. I I think that it also covers low income. It's sort of to me just a way to say everyone who has systematic disadvantages or threats that are different from like the majority groups. So I think you, you can't ever put like a hard stop to your umbrella. Because like as we as we go and progress as a society, hopefully like that umbrella gets bigger. Does
2: that make sense? Yeah, I was just curious as to if you're a part of this group that is vulnerable, if you stay vulnerable throughout your journey in in graduate school and so on, you know?
1: Yeah, I mean, part of this is you can hear in in the way I talk about it, that I am a social scientist. And we're very used to like talking about population groups in this way, you know, and there's a metaphor that I like to use with people outside of the field, which is a little bit like, You could care about a lot of things. I care about environments. I just find them very interesting. And I think if we can shift an environment around people, we'll like raise everybody in this way that is useful. You could also care a lot about individuals, you know? So say that's like the growth mindset stuff, if you've ever heard of that. You know, the individually, what do you think about how intelligence operates or something? And all these things all interact. I like to use this metaphor that's like all of these things matter and your own effort matters, but also you were born into an environment that has such an impact on what's available for you. So I think of it kind of like there are all these little clouds of asteroids. You know, I really like space and science fiction. So I think like you're in this little cloud of asteroids, right? Like it's not one thing. You're not all one comet together. You're all these different little individual rocks. And there are other ones that are on better trajectories than yours, you know, higher, like closer to wherever you want to be. So you can be to the center of that cloud. And by your own effort, you can get yourself to the outside of this cloud of asteroids. And then you can sometimes another cloud of asteroids will pass by and you can like leap into it. I don't know if this is just only useful in my own mind. But this is how I think of it for myself too, is like, there are some moments for people that are, that are really a category change. Like suddenly you're a person with a college degree, suddenly you're a person who's made it past a critical threshold point. And I would love to get more people past those threshold points. I would also love for us to like critically examine what we're making threshold points, you know? You know, you cannot change like your racial identity or something, that should never be a critical threshold point. But it is useful and interesting and I think of it a little bit like, yes, I came from that other asteroid field, but it's also part of the weird, disconcerting bit because you know suddenly you're with all the little asteroids that were that never had to do what you did, to like survive passing the sun or whatever.
2: Does that make sense? Like, yeah. Yes. Uh, the question I wanted to ask was: What are some of your biggest takeaways from you know what you've learned in your career, but also your background and, and the position that you're in now, where you can help people who might have been in the same place that you are? So, what advice would you give, or so someone who's who's wanting to help, and also people who might be scared to apply to grad school or might not have the support to even apply to college?
1: Yeah, I think for the you know vulnerable learners those folks and people who are really trying to like get in or make it, maybe this is going to sound really cheesy, but you know, you have to build a habit of believing in yourself. And, and I think that every human out there is so valuable. And especially these groups of people who usually, if not always have surmounted something amazing. That's one of the big points I made in that medium piece. I hope like the reason I kind of wrote it was to say To me, sometimes some of these programs are like, oh, we're happy to admit people who had weird experiences or whatever, as long as they're indistinguishable (laughs) from the rest of us, you know? So in that framing, that's like the great America whitewashing. If you can just fake it, then you'll make it. And I think that that's wrong Uh, from, from a science point of view. From the point of view about how we solve problems, from the, the view of like what achievement is and what these people bring to the table, it's just factually wrong that achievement only lives in these certain groups of people and trails along with these proxy measures that we use, like pulled out of our own biases, really. So to me, it's like a truly inclusive and diverse future will produce way better work And you only get there by saying, we have to be comfortable with letting people be different. And you're going to experience this tension of, we would like to evaluate everybody against each other in a way that's fair. So we want to evaluate them as much as we can in the same ways, but you can't do that by acting like everyone's the same. So for instance, somebody who went to a high school and several of my friends went to a fancy high school in D.C. with a bunch of politicians' kids, and they all had like 3.99 whatever GPAs, um, which is admirable. But the 3.5 GPA from someone who was babysitting their siblings every night and studying on the bus, to me, is a categorically different achievement than the other thing. And it's, you know, I don't ever want to pit students against each other or anything like that but it is just being willfully blind to say like none of this counts like none of this effort none of this passion none of this believing in yourself none of that gets to count you know it's just invisible and that that just frustrates me <laughs> a lot so my advice often to people on the other side in power and i try to do this i've limited power but is to say don't just make it as fair as you can you know don't just collect gpa if GPA is different for people. And it's a very, very tough problem. You know, I don't know what all the right metrics are. I don't think it's all solved by metrics as much as I'm a stats data person. But I think that broadening this stuff in applications, in mentoring, in these moments of like, how are we creating a community of people who are doing work together? Just like telling people you're ready to help, it has to be active. It has to be a thing you're continually working on. So it's not enough to just say, I'm pretty sure our graduate application is not like wildly biased against women, you know. <laughs> which is kind of where the bar stops for a lot of programs. It's like, well, we have a gender balanced committee and we're letting in like enough women to our bio program or something. <laughs> that's nice, but you have to really actively put this stuff in. So say, whether that's diversity statements, whether that's, making sure your schools are advertising to like low-income areas that are in the region. I mean, I don't know what all of that stuff is, whether it's having a bridge program. Um, UCSD has a pretty great bridge program for community college students who transition to the four-year university. Like that's a big game changer for them. That's like jumping the asteroid cloud. So there's a lot of work out there to do in the world. I guess my main advice is like, Definitely whatever little bit you can actively work on and push forward is really good. And I, I think that it's so interesting to get under the first story that these students tell you because they have almost never been allowed to just be real about their lives. And that to me is a big piece of advice I give people is sometimes these students are like, you're amazing. A student who's like taking the bus home for two hours and working while they're taking care of their siblings and balancing this cultural stuff maybe their parents are like a citizenship risk they're never gonna tell you all like why should they tell you all of that because they haven't you know had a safe place to talk about it probably and it's not like people have the right to like keep this information private but to know that they have gotten very good usually at a performance of a certain way of being, because that's all that's been allowed to them. So it is on us, I think, people in power to create a safe space where that reality can come out. Because I think there's a lot of people who are like, oh, wow, like if I had known you were dealing with all of that, my conception of what you've accomplished would totally change. Like if you wrote a paper while you're dealing with this hardship, that's very impressive, but people really don't know. So that's that. And on the on the vulnerable learner side, it's like take care of yourself. Survive. Don't make the perfect the enemy of the good. Just keep believing in yourself.
2: <laughs> no, that's good. I mean, it's definitely difficult to be transparent about the things that you may go through that might not be alike to those around you who have other opportunities that you did not have. Like it, it is difficult to admit that things might be harder for you. And various ways. Yeah.
1: And I don't think every moment is the moment to make yourself vulnerable. I mean, that's these are very reasonable decisions, which is another thing I try to tell people who are doing a lot of outreach who didn't grow up with a lot of baggage, you know, because they don't necessarily see it that way, which is just be aware. People are not doing things for no reason. My friends always joke to me like, Kat, you could have written a really killer college application essay about like your hardship, you know, like all this stuff and not going to school, you know, until college. It did not even occur to me to put this into an application essay. Like I would rather die than talk about it. I just thought it was embarrassing and terrible. And it's only recently in my life that I've started to talk about it. So disclosure's hard.
2: Yeah, especially when it's so personal it's a part of who you are but also people benefit from hearing these stories too because they feel as though they're not alone so it's like a constant battle of like trying to be a little bit more personal about things that have happened to you but also trying to make others feel more welcome in in that sense so
0: yeah absolutely yeah we have a few minutes left probably before we should i was thinking that having someone who is not a peer, but has been through graduate school or has served on admissions committees to be a reader like like that is invaluable because you can help with those judgments of like, well, what does the committee care about? Or someone who's read hundreds of these will know, oh yeah, this stands out.
1: (laughs) It is interesting because there's a point at which it feels like people are so far away. As much as they're experts and they're wonderful, it's actually kind of very scary. You know, like students can sort of see I'm at point A and they're at point C, but point B is a mystery. And um, I consider myself at point B and it was actually very scary really, I have to say, to say like, I think I have something valuable, some valuable feedback to give even though I'm not, a tenure chair of a department, you know, that stuff. So I think I think people underestimate I'm a big believer in peer to peer feedback, too. I think students talking to each other can be so valuable. And that's a big part of where you'll find
0: really insightful community. Yeah, that's great. So even if they don't, end up having someone like you read their essay have your roommate read it or
1: yeah we did an experiment actually when i was in the design lab there's this platform called peer studio i think it's at peerstudio.org and it was a uh, started at stanford by my advisor um scott Klemmer and chin Mai who's now i think he's in pittsburgh now so they're human computer interaction researchers and they built a platform that let people give trade peer-to-peer feedback on work artifacts so it was initially for classroom stuff so like You give everybody essays and you want students to grade each other, which is a cool learning experience. But we were really interested in like, how can we expand that? So we did a project where we like a free just open, you know, just a website where you could say, I want to share my anonymized version of my graduate application essay with other people who are applying to grad school. It was very interesting. And we did an experiment and people gave each other great feedback. You know, they were very kind and of course it wasn't from the perspective of a professor or something but certainly just having another pair of eyes just the encouragement alone i think was a big deal to people
0: i'm curious is it published uh yeah we have a paper on it yeah i'd be happy to email that to you yeah
1: i've always wanted to do something more like that i'm really interested in like crowdsourcing platforms i think Just creating the space for people to do this stuff. So,
0: yeah, well, and exactly that kind of the barrier where you reached out on Twitter and said, Hey, I'm here for people. And some of your friends were like, Well, how do I sign up to do that?
1: Like, I need to just devote a weekend to like coding this up. Or there's a couple of people in the human computer interaction space who are experimenting with this stuff. But again, I I see it just doesn't get much further than like a small pool of computer science students or something. So, (laughs) I've actually thought about a lot of people are like applying and they're almost there, but they're not quite at the cutoff point. And that it was really sad that those people suddenly just got to feel rejected. And then they would like maybe not try, right, especially people who didn't necessarily believe in themselves anyway. And I think there's such a a lack of good positive feedback. So one experiment that I've in a number of different projects, I've tried to do this, you know, is this idea of like a funnel that's much like, just continues to hold people in it. So if you're trying to apply to grad school, I, I really want to do this as a research experiment with some grad program, you know? So like, if anybody wants to, I think it would be really cool to have like the summer before some workshop development outreach thing that then flows into the application process. Like it doesn't have to be the application process. You know, I I don't want to overburden people, but I think it's such a beautiful idea, even, you know, for people who applied, who were really great. And we all know that like there's whatever, 13 spots and 30, 50 qualified candidates to be able to come back and say, hey, you were great. I would love to somehow be connected to those pipelines because I think that a lot of people drop out and they just get really discouraged. And it's an interesting idea to think about these people who are like almost there, maybe next year they're going to be there. I find myself serving that function a lot for students who reach out to me and we talk and they apply to 10 programs and don't get into what, you know, or I had several students who like would apply one year and then the next year I would encourage them to apply again and then they get in and that's a game changer. So it's so longitudinal. Right. But if you don't have someone like encouraging you through that
2: process, you can drop out. Yeah. yeah. Speaking for myself, I don't think that if I hadn't gotten to grad school the first time, I don't think I would have tried again.
1: I find a lot of people just have no idea about the options. Right, Certainly for me, the reality was like, go work in this really blue collar, economically depressed town. Like that's what everybody did. Get married at, at 20. And, you know, not, not that there's anything wrong with that. But, you know, that kind of like this is a very different life than go to college and become a professional and have a career. I mean, people had jobs, not careers where I was. And so I found a lot of students just, they know that there's like a really prestigious PhD program, but maybe they don't know that there are actually like master's programs or, you know, they don't know about these different ways you can put options together and of course, people who work in admissions or counseling in, in big schools like are well familiar with this, and, and they help the populations that are there, and, and, and they do amazing work. But I, I find that a lot of students, despite all the information online, they just have no idea. Like They don't know the difference between a master's that you pay for versus a PhD that has a stipend. They don't know about fee waivers. Sometimes I tweet about that, and I always get several people who say, wait, you can get a fee waiver for these fees for grad school? That is simple little details that nonetheless crushes people for for just no reason.
2: Yeah, and it's even some places that I applied to had fee waivers, but they weren't apparent. And you had to go through a lot of hurdles just to figure out who to ask and who to talk to.
1: Or there's conflicting information on websites. I mean, sometimes I'm just someone for students to say, someone who's not afraid of like emailing professors and saying, hey, why is your website from 10 years ago? <laughs> you know, this doesn't look like it's actually that I'm a researcher, right? So I can I can look up this information and I'm like, I think that this, this policy has changed and I actually see this is different, you know, in their policy. But that's like a PDF somewhere on some link on the university website. So of course, anyone at a university knows these systems are very burdened as well. And I'm not blaming anyone in these systems for the those sort of things. But it it takes people on the inside sometimes who can speak that language to like translate it. I think students who haven't had a lot, they have never imagined Many of them like a university that has a whole office that's concerned with, like at UCSD, I think they have an equity and inclusion office now, and or they have student legal services. Students just, they don't live in these worlds where people are there to help them. So the more you could point them towards that, it was unbelievable to me, you know, that there would be people who would care at these institutions,
0: but there are. That's actually probably a great note to end on. (laughs) Well,
1: I hope this was helpful.
2: This
0: was amazing. Yeah. Yeah, Enjoy doing it. I
1: loved
2: speaking with you. Thank you so much for taking some time out to talk to us. Pleasure.
0: And that's it for this episode of the Sustainable Nano Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thank you again to Dr. Kat Hicks for talking with us and to Becky Rodriguez for conducting the interview. Our music is by PC3 and Dexter Britton. Thank you to the National Science Foundation for funding the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology, which produces this podcast. Our usual disclaimer, though, the opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not necessarily those of the National Science Foundation. Want more Sustainable Nano? You can subscribe to the podcast through Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or listen to any of our episodes and see show notes at podcast.sustainable-nano.com. We also have a blog with over 280 posts at this point, mostly written by students in the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology, which you can find at sustainable-nano.com. And you can reach out to us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Sustainable Nano, all one word. We'd love to hear from you. So thanks for listening to the Sustainable Nano podcast. And remember, in nanotechnology as in life, little things can make a big difference.